Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. This is the Wednesday edition coming up on today's program. Look at some uh, interesting headlines as well as uh, what's on the trumpet.com. And preview a few programs coming up today here on KPCG. Also, a really interesting historical note related to an election that uh, I think you'll remember. And also, uh, continuing to look at this really interesting, fascinating look at history and prophecy, history and prophecy of the Middle East. We have that and a whole lot more coming up on today's edition of Trumpet Radio Live. is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG, and we're online at kpcg.fm. If you would like to uh, follow us on Twitter, please do that at kpcg.fm. If you'd like to send an email, we appreciate those. Send those to comments at kpcg.fm. Dwight Falk and Grant Turgeon with you here today on this Wednesday. Uh, we have some listener feedback to begin the program today. Interesting uh, uh, note that was sent in to us in relation to what's going on out there in California. This is uh, from Matt. He says, hello, I'm a Southern California listener, and I usually listen while I'm driving. It's a good way to do it. Use the TuneIn app or your phone or however you'd like to do it. He said, I listened to the December 7th episode last week, and I wanted to share with you guys something concerning the fires. I was working right next to the Thomas fire, and my work project got shut down for the whole week because of it. You imagine that they're like, yeah, go home for the. I hope I hope he still got paid. <laughs> yeah, those are the types of jobs that you really like to have at a time like that. If it's an out, if it's an outdoor job, sometimes the elements will give you a week or two off. That's that's ideal. Yes, hopefully he didn't lose money on that. But he says, on my way home, <clears throat> excuse me, I was driving to the San Fernando Valley. There was another big cloud of smoke, and it was uh, the Creek Fire that was about three miles from my house. So as you can see, there's a lot of. Uh, you know, people listening that are right by those fires. He says, so the fires are pretty bad. The Thomas fire is still going on. But what I wanted to share that I found amazing was that when we met for church services on the 9th, there was another fire that had recently burned right into the hotel parking lot wall where we uh, meet for services. <clears throat> it was pretty amazing to see God's protection with stopping the fire probably 300 feet away from our meeting room. I'm sure we will have more curses coming to California, but thank God for his truth and protection. So it becomes very real very quickly when you're living near those fires, working near them, and then you're even, you know, uh, meeting for services or something like that, and the fire is burning, you know, within 300 feet of where you are. So uh, they're they're in the middle of it out there. Yeah, I was inspired by that feedback just to see that the fires might be all around. They might be take, giving you a week off of work, but at the same time, uh, not getting to the meeting hall. I mean, God doesn't want services interrupted <laughs> for his one true church. So you, you of course want to be able to uh, meet despite some of the elements that are running wild around you. Yeah. Those, uh, those problems are uh, continuing somewhat uh, out there in California. At least the last I've heard those fires are still kind of going on. And as uh, Matt says here, there's still some, some of that happening. So, 
Uh, and I don't. There's no rain in the forecast from what I've seen, at least not in the next few days. So, uh, chance for more and more of that. Uh, some people say it's climate change. <laughs> uh, others would uh, disagree with that. Well, um, I remember last time there were fires in California, like months ago. Someone in Oregon was saying that there was ash just falling from the sky and landing on on everyone's cars and such. That's right. It's it's just incredible how uh, powerful those types of disasters can be and how even far and wide you see the effects of them. Yeah, that reminds me uh, when we were out in Washington there in the fall, um, the, the the water was a lot lower than normal from at some places, rivers and things like that. Uh, my wife's from up in that area originally, so she had something to, uh, to uh, compare it to. <clears throat> and uh, we went to certain places. They were still beautiful, but she was amazed at how low the, the water was. So they've had fires there on the West Coast. And particularly when you go up into, like, Washington area or, or Oregon, you know, they usually have a fair bit of rain, so you usually don't have those problems. But, uh, you know, things are changing there somewhat. So uh, interesting to look at that. We appreciate that uh, feedback. Here's a, uh, a headline from today, probably the big story here in the U.S. anyway. Once a long-shot Democrat Doug Jones wins Alabama Senate race. The hotly contested Alabama Senate race. We all just wanted it to end. <laughs> just let it end so we don't have to hear any more about it. Uh, Doug Jones is the apparent winner, uh, the Democrat. He had 49.5% of the vote. Roy Moore had 48.8%. So, I mean, it was really close. And then uh, there was write-ins for 1.7%. So uh, Roy Moore, I guess, said he wasn't going to concede. <laughs> they always say that. <laughs> I don't know what, what you can do about it. But uh, it appears Doug Jones has won. Uh, he's 63, best known for prosecuting two Ku Klux Klansmen responsible for bombing Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963 uh, offered himself chiefly as a figure of conciliation. He vowed to pursue traditional democratic policy aims in areas such as education and health care, but also pledged to cross party lines in Washington and partner with Senator Richard O. Shelby, Richard C. Shelby, rather, the long tenured Alabama Republican to defend the state's interests. So the, the people have spoken and it's almost divided right down the middle. Yeah, it's sad that so many of these elections have to come down to allegations about someone's personal life. I mean, it was the same thing in the last presidential election, too, where things come out a month before the election. And you have to wonder how much things like that change it. A lot of Republicans and independents pledged that they would just have a write-in ballot. If they would have voted for Roy Moore, instead they were going to write someone else's name after they found out about those allegations. The thing about those all though is that all of those women seem to have gotten their details mixed up in the stories um it's suspicious i mean you would you would hope that there there didn't have to be something like that allegations like that that would get in the way of otherwise maybe an election that would have gone the other way i don't yeah i i didn't hear anything about actual i guess you'd consider them campaign issues outside of the the accusations it's all smears i mean both ways um he, roy moore was targeting how doug jones is a supporter of like really really late term abortions uh, mm -hmm. i guess that is a policy issue but then doug jones was only pretty much focusing on um the uh, sexual assault allegations against roy moore and then and then when he won he said it wasn't about roy moore at all that he won of course it was that's yeah. alabama never votes democrat of course it was because of all of your smear campaigns against him. That's the way uh, elections and campaigns are these days. It's not so much a matter of, here's what I'll provide for you. It's more a matter of, well, look at that guy. 
wouldn't you rather have me? At least I'm not as bad as that guy. Mm. <laughs> and so it is It is just, uh, well, it's really shameful, I guess, to see just how negative all that gets. But anyway, we won't have to hear about it much more, I guess, <laughs> for a while until the next uh, cycle uh, kicks in. I, You know, I think some people really feed off of elections and that type of um, controversy. But I just find it to be tiring and just uh, exasperating. And even though I'm not, you know, a political hound to where I'm sitting there looking at every headline, you see enough of them to where you just you just get turned off. I think. I, I wonder how the average person feels. Like if they're more along the lines of how I feel, or if they're, uh, you know, really excited to see, you know, all this fighting back and forth. Probably most people are like you. I, I got discouraged reading a lot about that election. I, for the most part, I even tried to avoid reading too much about it just because it, it does get tiring it does get old when basically what they're trying to do is is convince the most people that their opponent is a bad person i mean that's the disturbing trend in american politics now it doesn't matter what the issues are debating is gone it is just a matter of this guy is evil and so you need to vote for me instead they're not even trying to claim that they're good people they're just saying the other person is worse that's how bad we are now that apparently both candidates are bad but we're just picking between uh i guess we're just picking which one we think is less bad yeah and it's also it's a sliding scale of what matters as far as morality is concerned like that's always changing and usually for the worse i guess uh there was uh president trump tweeted something yesterday and it defended somebody and so then the usa today jumped on and attacked him and said some pretty derogatory things about him and they made an interesting point in there they said in the usa today article they said well president obama and president bush you know sure they didn't always tell the truth and they didn't keep their word but you know at least they were decent people i'm like well (laughs) so so you you're saying it's okay to lie you can still lie and be decent like what what moral equivalency are you messing with here yeah it you have i just really can't figure out what the scale is or what the qualifications for being a good person are um i mean donald trump was more successful than the other two does that ever account for anything at all i mean if if everyone has their flaws and and really all three of those people mentioned there were ex- exposed or ridiculed for certain things by different parts of the media everyone can have their flaws brought out before the public if they're put in a public office like that but at least at least president trump was really successful in business before he became a president it doesn't seem like they usually point out the positive aspects of that man no the the media coverage is 90 percent negative they said which is amazing and there's i mean granted like you said there's no matter who's in office sure there's always some things you could look at there and sometimes they need to be looked at Maybe in a more in a more negative light, I guess, <laughs> but still, just the moral equivalency of people deciding whoever the writer was for the USA Today deciding that you can be decent and do these things, but if you do this, you're not decent. You know, based based upon what law, and that's where it's getting strange. So, well, it's funny because USA Today is basically saying that lying is fine because they're also lying quite a lot. I don't know how much of their fake news about the president has ever been positive. What single time has the media issued a retraction about President Trump when it was a positive story? And they said, oh, sorry, our facts were wrong. We said something nice about the president, but now we have to retract it. No, it's negative every single time because that's what their aim is. They're not reporting news. They're just showing their opinions through, through their reporting. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really a, a negative news cycle, that's for sure. A uh, couple of health notes here today. This is a finding from studyfinds.org. If you uh, find yourself in a position where you're going to a physician, <laughs> wordplay it just came to me i didn't even didn't even think that up some Brilliant. people some people uh or i didn't plan it out i should say the uh, uh they look to see youth versus experience which doctor are you safer with if you have to go have something done researchers at harvard wanted to know how well physicians perform as they age they looked at the records of 730,000 medicare patients treated between 2011 and 2014 and uh, they say patient deaths rose gradually as physicians aged, but the biggest gap, 1.3 percentage points, showed up between hospitals, or hospitalists, I guess that would be the doctors, <laughs> 40 and younger and those 60 and older. This means one additional death for every 77 patients admitted by a doctor who is 60 or older versus a doctor who is 40 or younger. Mm. So a little bit difference there. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you can really draw from that. They said, well... Maybe it just means that you know the doctors need to keep keep up with your education and not let it slip and mm. keep. They found that the more people that a doctor treated, the better their results were. Like the more they were practicing it, and it is a practice, by the way, um, <laughs> the better they were at whatever they were doing. That's an interesting study. I wonder how much as well. Like the older you get, obviously, sometimes even a doctor's health will will start to fail sometimes, and if they're a little bit slower at doing something if it might be a really urgent situation to try to save a life that might come into play if they you know if they're a little bit more unstable and their hands might shake a little bit more when they're doing something that requires a lot of precision that could uh, cause some things as well um but i don't really know what else might might change that i don't do, i don't know if it has to do with education i mean obviously they had to go through a lot of schooling. Maybe maybe as time goes on, you forget a little bit of the details. Well, I think what – it seemed like kind of what they were maybe saying is that a lot of it has to do with what drugs are prescribed. Hmm. Um, because that, that was the detail that they really didn't get too much into in the study, at least what they released was, okay, but well, what are the doctors doing? You know, I mean, if somebody – if you're looking at a heart surgeon versus a general you know, country doctor, yeah, it's going to – you know, you're dealing with different things there. But, uh, you know, they're prescribing all kinds of things, whether people need it or not, I think, in a lot of cases. But you have to be really careful with what you prescribe there. And so I don't know if that's where that difference comes in, like if they're not up on the new the new pill. I feel like I'm up on it because I watch I watch the news most nights and I watch all the, the ads. <laughs> Like the five minute ads for whatever the new uh, drug is, so I feel like I, I feel like I, I'm almost a pharmacist <laughs> at this point. I think right, you're probably an expert by now. We probably all are if we if we do watch the news. They're they're catering that to older viewers, yep. which which again tells you that maybe as younger people we should be watching more news than we do. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how much of um, how much of it comes down to a pill. I mean, any study could really show something, and so if it's only one extra death per 77 people um that that could just be a matter of like you said a difference in the operation if you're not comparing heart transplants to heart transplants or blood transfusions to blood transfusions who knows if maybe uh, the ones who are dying for those older physicians are also undergoing much more complicated operations too there was that study a few oh maybe it was a year ago where they asked doctors if uh you know they get to an end of life situation do they want to go to the doctor and most of them said no 
which I thought was interesting because they're, they're dealing with people all the time and because of their experiences, they said now they would prefer not to get involved with it. So, I, you know, uh, there'd be some maybe differing, differing opinions there, but I, I think it's interesting to look at what the doctors themselves say. How many people have they probably seen in a vegetative state just from applying some sort of injection or, or putting them on a respirator or whatever it takes to keep someone alive? But it's not obviously not quality life. The physicians would see that up close, and they probably wouldn't want to experience the same things. Right, yeah. There is a there is a natural time to to die, and uh, sometimes it's better to, to, to have that happen as opposed to being kept going in a, in a way where it's not pleasant. Uh, speaking of uh, health, uh, when you get to the end of a year, a calendar year, they always come out with their lists, and somebody sent this to me. Uh, unhealthiest fast food items of 2017. <laughs> they gave you 20. I'm not going to give you 20. I'll just give you a few of them here. So there's a, they're always trying to come up with some new concoction for the fast food restaurants. It was just so funny because it seems like the more there's talk about health and proper nutrition in like, like the media, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a trend that way, I think. There's also then the other side where it's just like, well, let's just, just throw, throw a caution to the wind. So here's some things you you may want to avoid. I'm not saying you you have to. I'm just just throwing it out as information. Unhealthiest fast food items of 2017: the uh, Burger King Flamin' Hot Mac and Cheetos. Mm. You heard of this? Yes, I have. Yeah, um, are aren't those the like the coated chicken fingers, or are those just Cheetos by themselves? These it says Burger King managed to re- it's well it's mac and cheese. Like macaroni and oh, yeah. cheese inside, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like they coated the mac and cheese, yeah. and so it's like you can pick it up uh, with your bare right. hands. Yeah, right. Burger King managed to remake mac and cheese the ultimate comfort food, according to this person. I never liked mac and cheese, but anyway. Into a portable <laughs> snack that might be even worse for your waistline than the original thing. The flaming Hot Cheetos Dusted Treat jam-packed with inflammatory vegetable oil and 1,170 milligrams of sodium is dangerously bloating. So... That's not a healthy option. It appears like Flaming Hot Cheetos are making their, their way into a variety of dishes. I was at a pretty nice restaurant the other day, and they had a sushi dish where they would top it with, like, the Flaming Hot Cheeto dust. Really? And I, tr- I actually tried it. It was pretty good. But mm. you, you would think that um, you could find another thing besides Flaming Hot Cheetos that could provide the spice. I don't want to know the details of what Cheetos are made out of outside of the, you know, the sauce they put on it or the dusting to make it taste like something. I mean, what is the actual Cheeto? It's like, I don't know. it's nothing. It's like, it's like, it's like foam. It's like foam. Styrofoam. Exactly. It's like a piece of styrofoam. They put cheese on it. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking of too. Here's another unhealthy fast food item. White Castle breakfast waffle slider with sausage, egg, and cheese. It's the picture of the thing was, I don't even know how you get your mouth on it. 440 calories, 31 grams of fat. Uh, don't be fooled, they say. Don't be fooled by this breakfast relatively low-carb count and high-protein count. White Castle ruins this waffle with an absurd amount of cholesterol-raising saturated fat. And if you regularly wake up to this sandwich, you surely won't witness the inches melt off your waistline. So that's what they say. This is their write-up. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, people could eat some of those things on the occasional, you know, needed to grab something. It might be all right. But, yeah, if you were making a habit of this, um, it's not going to be a long-lasting habit because you won't be lasting long. <laughs> yeah, what are the closest White Castle to us is actually in Missouri. I've yeah. checked because <laughs> I actually like that place, yeah. but maybe I should like it a little less after hearing about that one. Never been there. Uh, I never, I've never lived anywhere where they've had them. I've passed them on the interstate. 
and I, I've, I know of them, but I've never been to one. Uh, finally, here, again, there's quite a few, but these are the most unhealthy, most unhealthy fast food uh, meals or, or, or items of 2017. Carl's Jr. Uh, baby back rib topped thick burger. You know, there's a few of these commercials I've seen now where it's like they take three or four foods that people may get separately, and they say, well, let's just put it all together inside this burger. Mm-hmm. You know, like Arby's has got something yeah, I saw like that. that. Yeah. I love that guy, the guy that does the voice for the. He's so funny. Uh, <laughs> he's the greatest voiceover person of all time. I love it. Yeah, so funny. Uh, but this thing has 1,070 calories. <laughs> what? <laughs> 57 grams of fat uh, and lots of other stuff, 94 carbs. Stacked with a third pound of baby back ribs and slathered in tangy sauce, there's no wonder why this sandwich is oozing with over a thousand calories. Not to mention this fast food monstrosity sodium count looks more like your grandkids' birth year than a reasonable uh, nutritional uh, intake. So, uh, wow, and there might be a few reasons to avoid those uh, sandwiches, but uh, <laughs> not not good for you. And there's other things, including drinks, that we don't we won't get into. But even there, you have to be careful. You can go get a drink somewhere, and that's got 500 calories, 600, <laughs> and it's not it's not healthy calories for you. You have to give it to these restaurants because I used to think that every single unhealthy item had been invented already, but they just keep coming up with more, and they're not even being pressured by the health lobby. All the people who are trying to push for uh, us to improve our health. I even saw a story on CNN where apparently someone was joking that President Trump loves Diet Coke so much he probably drinks a dozen a day. Yeah. So they they went so far as to line up 12 12 Diet Cokes on the desk and then they were just talking about how unhealthy that might be Mm -hmm. but guess what these restaurants are not caving into that pressure well it's kind of uh, in a way it's almost like like politics where you have this big push for political correctness and people got kind of sick of that and then you have a somebody come out like President Trump who just goes the opposite direction right and it's almost like that too where there's this health push and political correctness and somebody's like you know what how about we just take mac and cheese, stick it inside of a Cheeto? You know, we're not going to apologize for this. And obviously, they're selling them, so people must must be trying it. Probably uh, younger people that think they're in, you know, uh, uh, can't uh, can't ever be harmed physically. Uh, I don't think the older people would eat this, but maybe maybe some would. The people inventing these items are probably the ones who have tried to go out with friends, and they have their list of restaurants severely restricted because of their friends who are on diets, and they just got sick of it, and so they decided to inv- invent some items at least at their own restaurants that they could try. I'm trying to, you, you talk about inventing them, I'm trying to envision like the board meeting, you know, you have to come up with the new ideas, the day where some of these were invented and people just burst into applause, you know, <laughs> finally, you've combined it all, or what about the ones that haven't worked? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the lab, the testing lab. There was a, I guess there was a segment with Conan O'Brien, that late night host, and he took one of his workers who is obsessed with Taco Bell to their lab, basically, where they're trying out all these different products before they actually start to sell them in their restaurants. And uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, they come up with some vile concoctions there. I mean, obviously, they can't all make it to market, but uh, that would be a pretty fun job if you weren't worried about the repercussions to your health later. (laughs) Yeah, that would be, uh, wow, I can't even imagine. So anyway, you have to be careful when you're eating. Uh, eating out is, is an adventure, so usually not too many healthy options. One other note here that I think is interesting, uh, kind of a sports-related note, but health-related too. There's a major league uh, umpire that's retiring uh, due to concussions. He had four concussions in five years. I haven't thought about that before. They talk about concussions for football players, 
But as an umpire, you take a foul foul tip into the mask or, you know, something else like that, uh, and you got a concussion all of a sudden. So in this case, the guy got four of them in five years. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense because at least with a football helmet, it's strapped on and it's on there pretty tight. Uh, with an umpire's mask, it's meant so that there's like a loose strap on the back so that you can take it off of your face pretty quickly. Uh, once you get hit in the face by a 95-mile-an-hour foul tip, um, that mask is going to jolt everywhere, and, and probably the metal's going to hit you right in the face. So it would probably be a lot worse than, than some football hits even. Yeah, those whether it's a football helmet or it's a, a umpire's mask or even a batter's helmet, it, it will protect you from the like the tissue damage. But at the same time, your head's still getting jolted like mm-hmm. that. And that's obviously where a lot of those concussions come from. So, yeah, dangerous professions out there. Uh, I never thought about umpires as being all that dangerous of a profession, but in this case it is. That'll, yeah, but- be, that'll be the next thing. They'll, they'll all be having these brain scans because of their uh, their umpiring concussions. That's why maybe the calls are so bad. <laughs> Balls Probably. and strikes, what are you talking about? Yeah, that, they have been debate, debating for a while about uh, – turning to robots for the umpires Hmm. but you do have it to be a special kind of daring once again to be an umpire or a catcher you're standing behind some giant really strong batter and he's swinging this piece of lumber right in front of your face he could easily swing a little bit too wide and hit the catcher right in the face um the ball is going to deflect all over the place. The catcher gets hit all the time. If it doesn't hit the catcher, it's going to hit the umpire. Um, I've seen foul tips hit hit guys in the privates, in the face, in the arms, in the legs, um, and then they're down for quite a while. You have to be pretty. You have to be pretty crazy to want to have a job like that. That would be an interesting uh, thing to see what like the health of catchers are. Yeah, because you like yeah, you're right. I mean, they take a lot of shots. Uh, I saw, we were at a minor league game a couple of years ago, and I saw the umpire get hit in the throat. Yeah, I thought I, th- I thought he was like killed. Mm-hmm. He laid there for a while, but he was all right, thankfully. But yeah, dangerous. Yeah, it really is. And um, I guess catchers usually have a lower batting average than most of the other players, and I kind of question why that was. But they're taking so much abuse, and even just the fact that every single day they have to get in a, a crouching position for probably about an hour and a half for every single game. That that would probably wear on your knees a lot as well. And the umpire's doing basically the same thing right behind the catcher. Yeah, every every dad, uh, or I suppose it could be mom too, but dad that's been out there practicing with their kids for Little League and you know they want to practice their pitching and you're going to catch for them, you just take a look next time. Everyone's sitting on a bucket <laughs> right? because <laughs> you can't crouch down you, you know, more than for about a minute or two, and you're like, i got to sit on something. My knees are killing me. And I so, don't know how they do it. No, I don't it's either. It's amazing. Pop up and down. Uh, Trumpet.com today. Make sure you stop and check this out. Will Donald Trump's tax plan lead to trade war? The uh, tax plan looks like it could help America in a lot of ways because the uh, corporate tax rate being lowered. But Europe doesn't like it, and uh, it's understandable in a lot of ways. America has a lot to gain from the reforms, but Europe has a lot to lose. That's always the challenge when you're trying to bolster your nation. Does it uh, harm other nations, and then uh, how do you resolve that uh, issue? Yeah, and this has been a criticism of the president from both Democrats and Republicans, and it might be like the one valid criticism that the left has leveled at the president is that when you're that aggressive with manufacturing or importation or exportation policies you are going to at some point probably irritate other nations and especially 
when you're importing things, but you're putting a gigantic tariff on those nations' goods, that's going to have a gigantic impact on the other nations' economies. And usually, they're probably not going to take that very well. Yeah, it's hard because you want... You know, you don't want to just roll over and have other nations just steamroll you. Right. You want to stand up for yourself, but then at the same time, there's sort of this delicate balance of, of working with all that. So it is, it is, it is, an, it is a global world. You know, uh, as far as because of the trade and everything else. But the Bible talks a lot about trade, trade wars and things that are going to happen there. So make sure you read this uh, article here at thetrumpet.com. We'll how not, how different? Oh, sorry. How how different would it be though if America? were the creditor nation and not mm-hmm. the debtor nation. If you flip those roles uh, between America and all the other nations around, it would obviously America would have a lot more power to even engage in a trade war if it got to that point. But as it is right now, other nations are going to say, well, why are you trying to force these types of tariffs on us when you owe us billions or trillions of dollars? Yeah, that's a great point, and that's a great and very natural lead-in to uh, other articles on thetrumpet.com about uh, uh, that exact topic, about the debt being really a foreign policy issue. And then on the uh, Trumpet Hour program, which airs today as well, one of the topics is also about the debt that we have in the nation, which is which is huge, and it's growing. And so, uh, yeah, there's a, that's the hard thing about trying to deal with the economy or anything else. We're, we're uh, breaking a lot of laws to where we have all this massive debt piling up and then trying to trying to uh, still have the nation be benefited or, or be prosperous while other laws are being broken. So it, it's a no-win situation. It's like trying, you know, it's like the old picture of where you're on the, the, the sinking raft and you're trying to like <laughs> throw the bucket of water out and there's like more, two buckets piling in every time. Right. You're trying to stay afloat. Yeah, and that's a principle uh, – that applies both nationally and individually. It's pretty hard to take a really tough stand on an issue when you have all these other problems that are weighing you down and undercutting your credibility. You know, even in, on an individual level, if we have a hard time even just waking up in the morning, it's going to be be hard to say, "Well, I'm drawing the line here at my TV time. I'm, I'm going to cut this off while I have all these other weaknesses." It, it is almost like it takes away your your confidence. Uh, to enforce or to to stand up and and put your foot down on something, uh, the president's going to see that as well. He's trying to be tough on trade, but then you have the debt that's weighing you down. Then you have domestic division and the potential possibility of a civil war. I mean, there those are those are things that are pretty crippling and that are going to undermine him when he's trying to be tough on trade. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Trumpet Hour program talks a little bit about that. The debt. Another thing it talks about, which actually mentioned there also, was uh, the benefits of sleep. There's a really good section there about the benefits of getting enough sleep. Uh, most people don't get enough sleep. I don't think that would be surprising. I think everybody probably battles with that a little bit. I think they still recommend about seven to nine hours a night, and a lot of people are getting an hour or so less than that, and it, it has major health implications, as is talked about on the Trumpet Hour. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of interesting studies about sleep as well, one of them being about uh, sleep cycles. All of us have periods where we're in our deepest sleep, and sometimes we set our alarm to be right in the middle of that period, which is probably why we feel so dead tired if it's at five in the morning or whatever i've noticed that i wake up naturally at like two o'clock in the morning and also at like six thirty. so it's one of those two for me or else i'm going to be pretty dead tired 
I find that my uh, most natural sleep cycle is whenever the alarm goes off. <laughs> I always feel like I'm sleeping very well at that time. Like period. that's the worst possible time yeah. the alarm could have gone off. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, it's funny because uh, I knew that this topic was going to be talked about in the trumpet hour, so I was thinking about it a little bit yesterday. And then I didn't sleep great last night. Mm. I was like, come on. I mean, I slept fine, but then, uh, I don't know, I just woke up too early and, uh, you know, I had energy, but I knew, you know, it's not going to last. And so I just think, why, why can't I just fall back asleep? (laughs) So I'm suffering today. If you could tell, if you noticed that, you know, you thought that guy just isn't quite as energetic. That's why. That's why. Tired. Trying to, trying to get enough sleep. One of the big things is scheduling it and saying, look, I'm going to at least give myself the opportunity to get enough. And sometimes, uh, People get so busy, it crowds, crowds out that sleeping time. Yeah, and, and it is important to uh, be firm on that, if if at all possible. Have some sort of bedtime, or at least within an hour uh, of time that you try to go to bed. And then I've been trying even just like waking up without an alarm lately. Uh, then you, Then you know you've slept enough. If you just wake up on your own. Uh, as long as it's not too late, if it's not at seven fifty-five, right. uh, that might be an issue. But if you're waking up um, before six or before seven, pretty well before those times, uh, sometimes that just means that you're already uh, recharged. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic and something to think about. Uh, some really interesting stats brought out on the benefits of sleep. That's uh, on the Trumpet Hour today. Also, the Trumpet Daily Radio Show. Richard Palmer today. Make sure you listen for those programs. Coming up here in a bit, and uh, of course you can download the podcast too. Today is the 13th of December. Interesting thing that happened on this day in relation to elections. In the year 2000, U.S. Vice President Al Gore conceded the 2000 presidential election to Texas Governor George W. Bush. The Florida electoral votes were won by only 537 votes, which decided the election. The election had been contested up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which said that the Florida recount supported by the Florida Supreme Court was unconstitutional. There was a law breaking going on there. Wow. Yeah. And that that was over a month after the election had actually happened. Uh, And and Al Gore held out for a pretty long time before he conceded a lot of controversy there. And we've even seen Florida going back and forth over the years with. Uh, whether they support a Republican or a Democrat. They were a swing state in the last election. So it's always a pretty hotly contested state there. Yeah, there's a really interesting section in the booklet, No Freedom Without Law, dealing with that particular election. And uh, you can get that at thetrumpet.com. It says, it may shock you, but the 2000 presidential election chaos in the U.S. was prophesied in your Bible. The battle between lawyers and judges that raged for weeks and months after the election was prophesied over 2,500 years ago. The nation and the world have, a lar- have largely forgotten that election and gone on with their lives, but there is a tremendous lesson in what happened that you cannot afford to forget. And it goes on to talk about uh, how the courts started to try to make the laws instead of just uh, uphold them. And uh, we've seen lawlessness and confusion, and it's gotten worse since that 2000 election here in the U.S. Yeah, it really has. And it's almost so commonplace for a judge to try to be an activist or to change laws now that we don't even think twice about it. That just seems like it's their job. Uh, There was a, a celebrity who was saying that Roy Moore didn't do anything for Alabama while he was a judge. And a comment like that does 
expose ignorance of what a judge actually does. He's only there to uphold law. He's not there to build you a road. He's not there to be an activist and push a social agenda. He's there to make rulings on cases based on what the law already says, regardless of what his own opinion is. So yeah, maybe he didn't do anything. Maybe there's no like tangible evidence of what he did for the state. But at the same time, that's not what a ju- judge's job is. They just have to uphold the law. That's it. It's not about being an activist, even though that's what we see all the time. Yeah, for those, I mean, lawyers and judges that are good at their jobs, uh, you know, it involves a lot of reading, a lot of studying to look at the precedent set in cases before, look at the history, and then and then see what the law says, as opposed to your opinion. You know, I mean, if it's just your opinion, then... Uh, uh, that would be easy in terms of you wouldn't have to do a lot of study. Like why go to law school if it's just your opinion, <laughs> right? I guess they'd say, well, I have they have a more informed opinion, but it still would just be an opinion, and that's what we see. Uh, that's what we see happening a lot. So anyway, that 2000 election really was a tipping point there, and was an embarrassment on the world stage too. You know, here you have the election, and a couple months later, a month later, they're still debating it in the the dimpled ballots and <laughs> all the terminology <laughs> that probably brings back a bad taste in everyone's mouth. Uh, uh, that was all back on this day in 2000. But really interesting write up about that in the No Freedom Without Law booklet. Also in 2001, on this day, Israel severed all contact with Yasser Arafat. Israel also launched airstrikes and sent troops into Palestine. In response to a bus ambush that killed 10 Israelis, Yasser Arafat, <laughs> uh, terrorist, of course, but yet people looked at him like some sort of freedom fighter. Some people did. That that has always been pretty baffling to see the media glorify him or any time he showed up at an event, uh, there was quite a big spotlight placed on him as if he uh, did anything to advance the cause of world peace. He was always supporting terrorist movements and encouraging any type of means necessary to advance the Palestinian cause. So uh, he wasn't the hero that so many people claim that he was. No, he wasn't. I I remember a news footage from uh, years ago, probably around that time, where they were asking him something about Israel. And, and uh, he kind of he, he had, a, at that time in his life, he kind of, uh, oh, I don't know, had like a little murmur or shake to him sort of. And I remember him speaking in English and cursing the Jews. <laughs> I thought, well, this is a guy that's supposed to be the big peace peacemaker over there, and he's cursing him. Uh, I think I also think, just as a side note, that it'd be really strange to uh, have to answer to a guy with that name because if you said yes, sir, it sounds like Yasser. <laughs> like it would be sort of a confusing. What'd you say to me? <laughs> yes, sir, Yasser. Don't call me by my first name. <laughs> yeah, my dad when I was younger was always making jokes about that that guy's name so <laughs> that that hits home for me <laughs> yeah i don't know it's not relevant at all but i just see that name and i always think that sounds like yes sir <laughs> but uh so we our minds think alike on some level there i guess uh that does tie into our uh, history note or, or or to what we want to talk about today that history note ties into it history and prophecy of the middle east there's of course uh, so much going on in the middle east brent nontigal talks about a lot of it today on the trumpet hour program as well but we're looking at this uh, really really amazing write-up uh, it's a booklet you can get at the trumpet.com history and prophecy of the middle east and again what we're focusing on is just the fact that daniel was given prophecy about what would happen to world empires he has this huge overview leading up to christ's return but then it's very specific in some ways too and it's a great proof of the accuracy of uh, God's word, this prophecy in particular, uh, because you can look at events that he prophesied. Some have happened already, 
and then some have yet to come to pass. So we're looking at some of that history. But that's the point that's so amazing. You can go back into the history books, as we'll talk about today, and you can see things that Daniel prophesied. They already happened. And then there's a few things we're waiting for. Yeah, that that prophecy is fantastic. It does it does talk about historical uh, relations between nations, and then also battles that took place. Uh, but then it there's a point in the chapter where it turns, and it's talking about things that are yet to happen. And even there, it gets really specific. So the credibility of the entire chapter of Daniel, the entire book uh, of Daniel, and then even the entire Bible there. Uh, is on the line because it's saying there's going to be a king of the north, a king of the south, kings of the east. Uh, it's talking about things that are happening in direct time sequence, and every bit of it has to be true or else the Bible is discredited. Right, and I, I suppose a person could say, well, how would how would they know what was going to happen? Well, God prophesied it and, and has the power to make it happen. So that's how those prophecies come true. But this uh, particular segment we're talking about today is something that's happened already that was prophesied, and that's the end of the Persia, uh, the end of Persia being prophesied. And it uh, quotes Daniel 11 and verse 2, where it says, And now will I show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. So it's giving very specific detail here about what's going to happen. And this is, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up uh, all against the realm of Grecia. So if you're just kind of reading this in passing, you think, well, what's that about? But when you go back into history, it all becomes very clear. And you have to remember, of course, Daniel received this vision during the third year of Cyrus the Great. So it was before these uh, events he was talking about happened. And uh, so it's interesting to note, though, that actually there were 12 more Persian kings after Cyrus. But as we'll see here, there's a reason God only drew attention to the four who followed him. Uh, the reason being, as we'll see, is those were the important ones. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's just a really specific point that's brought out. I mean, God could have said there'll be all these other ones too, but they weren't relevant. They didn't do anything of value. So he just draws attention to these four. And, uh, you know, that's some people's life, I guess. You're just a footnote in history. <laughs> right. It's not worth being mentioned. But when you start looking at these specific details, it just uh, it just highlights the accuracy. It's not like a, like a really sort of you could read into it one way or the other like these are specific details that history proves out yeah and it does it does help that the prophecies only include the most important parts because that's that's like now you're not going to read too many prophecies about uh africa or latin america because the hot spots are in the middle east in europe in asia and then with the anglo-saxon nations uh if you had prophecies about every little detail I mean, obviously, it would take many more books <laughs> to write about all of that. It, this is this is focusing on the most important leaders, the most important uh, interactions at that time, and uh, that's how it is with the prophecies for this end time too. Yeah, this this particular these kings that are mentioned, uh, Cyrus had two sons, uh, Cambyses and Smerdes. And after inheriting his father's throne, Cambyses secretly killed his younger brother. Always intrigue in those things. Uh, Cambyses ruled from 529 to 522 BC, and his reign was short-lived because after returning to Persia from an Egyptian expedition in 522, he found one by the name of Gomates, who had usurped the throne by impersonating Cambus's dead brother. So his brother died, and then this, this uh, imposter comes along and pretends to be him. <laughs> I don't know how you would pull that off exactly, but uh, so Cambus was so disheartened he committed suicide. 
So that knocks out those two. Uh, wow. And then, but then two come along that I think everyone knows. Those other two are a little more obscure. But then, after discovering the imposter, Persian nobles rejected him in favor of uh, Darius or Darius. I say, what do you say, Darius? Uh, Darius. Usually Darius for that name in general, but I think Darius in that case. <laughs> Darius, Darius, who uh, he ruled from 521 to 484 BC. So he's a name that I think even the casual observer is familiar with on some level. And that's the third king who followed Cyrus. He's been called the second founder of the Persian Empire because of his empirical expansion efforts and his popular domestic policies. So he's a major player and factors into some other prophecies as well. But then his, uh, the last uh, king mentioned there of the four is uh, Darius's son, Xerxes. And he's even, they've even put Xerxes in some movies, I guess, mm-hmm. lately, <laughs> or their interpretation of him. He inherited the powerful empire his father had built. He was the strongest and richest of all Persian kings. And just like it says in Daniel 11, 2, when he had become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against, or all against the kingdom of Greece. And so he came into power and he wanted to, uh, well, he was convinced anyway to go and fight against Greece. Philip Van Ness Myers wrote a, uh, a volume uh, about ancient history. And it says, after crushing the Egyptian revolt and suppressing another uprising in Babylonia, the great King Xerxes was free to devote his attention to the distant Greeks. And uh, just as Daniel said he would, he did this exact thing that was prophesied. Uh, Britannica notes that he, this king, Xerxes, is uh, best known for his massive invasion of Greece. I mean, that's what he's best known for. It's the exact thing that Daniel prophesied that this king would do. Yeah, and that does underscore the value of prophecy because <laughs> would this king have done that if he knew what was prophesied to happen uh, to the empire for attacking Greece? It didn't, it didn't turn out well, and... Uh, that can apply to us as well today. When when you see how nations are moving and you understand that there's only one way to escape the devastation that comes from that, uh, it, it does help. It does help to know what's coming so that you can prepare for it accordingly. Yeah, and Daniel's really specific here. It doesn't just say, like, well, he'd, he'd sort of battle Greece. <laughs> He's going to send everything. And the Britannica notes that the uh, impressionable Xerxes, he was a lot of his... Uh, his uh, advisors were telling him to go and do battle. It says the impressionable, impressionable Xerxes gave way to pressure from his entourage and threw himself into patient diplomatic and military preparations for war. It required three years to complete. They spent three years just planning this war. Wow. And uh, Herodotus notice, notes that never before had such an effort been undertaken. Troops were levied in all, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. The Navy uh, intended to be the Army supply line was gathered. They got all the troops together. They spent three years on this. And uh, it says the care lavished on this enterprise shows that the king did not regard it as a minor operation. And so you go back to Daniel saying he's going to you know, bring all this power against Greece. He did. It took three years just to plan and prepare. I don't know, man, when's the last time you spent three years preparing for something? <laughs> One <laughs> no single idea. thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that, again, you would think in most cases that that would lead to a better outcome in a war. If you spent three three years, I've never heard of that ever. Um, so, so that just shows, again, if God says you're not going to do well here, it doesn't matter if you prepare for three years for it. You can't break what God has already promised. Yeah, and he uh, he fulfilled that uh, 
that prophecy very specifically. And so when you, if you just read over Daniel's prophecy, it, it can be confusing. But then when you, you start putting the historical pieces in there, it really does uh, bring to light how accurate it was. And it's interesting looking at some of those specific details because, um, you know, it's easy to say, okay, yeah, he was going to come against Greece. But then you realize he spent three years preparing for this battle. Uh, and then he ran into uh, trouble, though, in the form of uh, another very powerful king being Alexander the Great. Yes, and it, the Bible is also very specific about what happens whenever he takes charge and just the the brilliance of his uh, military leadership, how swift they were able to move, how they just dominated every time they uh, went into battle. But then, of course, he died early. The and And we mentioned earlier in this prophecy that only four kings are mentioned there and, and not all the additional ones. And here's the reason why. Uh, this z- battle that Xerxes got into it was the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire, as Myers, the uh, historian, notes. The power and supremacy of the Persian monarchy passed away with the reign of Xerxes. The last 140 years of the existence of the empire was a time of weakness and anarchy, which presents nothing that need claim our attention in this place. Uh-huh. <laughs> and see, my, uh, Cyrus, after Cyrus, Myers feels that only four other Persian kings are worth mentioning. The historian feels the same. That's exactly what was prophesied. Uh-huh. It's also interesting, though, to note that that uh, empire went on after Xerxes for 140 years, but not not in a way that the Bible even wanted to mention those kings or, you know, a way that was productive. You know, you, you look at the U.S., it's been a couple hundred years, and it's easy to think, like, oh, it'll go on forever. Look at these empires, though. Some of them straggled on for 100, like in this case, 140 years, but it, the end had already really happened. Exactly. You could look at uh, Great Britain today. They had an empire. They still exist now as a nation, but they are not a global commonwealth like they used to be. They don't. They don't have land that they're controlling all over the world like they used to. It is a big difference. You can continue existing as a nation, but Daniel is trying to highlight four world-ruling empires. Once it ceases to rule the world, it's not even important in that prophecy anymore. So so, uh, Persia, once they stopped ruling the world, once they stopped being the most dominant power, prophecy moves on. It goes to the next world-ruling power. And I'm sure that whenever another king came in, in this 140-year period, people were probably encouraged, like, oh, yes, you know, we'll finally get back, we'll make Persia great again, or whatever right. their, their slogan <laughs> was at the time. And, and you, have to look, you have to look at, if, if, you're, if you're looking at modern events, you're looking at the nations on the world scene today, even just looking at things historically, it gives you a lot of perspective because, uh, you know, again, these empires, they were around for a long time. I'm sure people never thought they would fail, never. And uh, people have that same feeling today, whether it's the United States or Britain or or even if people admit, well, yeah, they're on the down downside, uh, they kind of think maybe I guess we'll sit in some sort of secondary world power status and just continue on. But that doesn't happen to these uh, empires when they fall. They're, they're uh, consumed by somebody else. Yeah, and it's kind of like it kind of reminded me of what President Trump tweeted about Roy Moore this morning, that the deck was stacked against him. Well, the prophecies are stacked against Mr. Trump ever making the country great again. And like you said, historically, you don't just you don't just go on for a long time. The decline is pretty rapid once you stop being an empire. You can't just trust other nations in the world to benevolently take over your leadership and let you exist for much longer. 
historically the next world ruling empire will crush any other former empires that's how they take that that crown yeah and you can see that in um in the the daniel image there where it shows those four empires uh, in verse 3 here of uh, Daniel 11, it says, And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Verse 2, it said Xerxes began tangling with Greece, and of course we've seen some of that history. And in verse 3, here we read that a mighty Grecian king stood to rule with great dominion. His name, of course, Alexander the Great. And he arrived in 334 B.C. to crush what remained of the Persians. So... Uh, when you're going to battle, I guess, I don't know if he had that same name then, but if you're going up against somebody called the Great, <laughs> it may not go well for you, unless you're the Greater. But in this case, uh, Alexander the Great had a quite a run of success there, crushing what remained of the Persians. Yeah, and, and he really was um, just a marvelous leader. As long as he lasted, obviously he had some some personal issues that probably led to his premature death. There's also... Um, a, a story of him having an interaction in Jerusalem where he easily could have uh, destroyed the Jewish people, but he didn't. Uh, the Bible is very specific about these types of things, and and that does really build faith to to see that all these details come to pass exactly like the Bible says. What are the odds unless God made that all happen? That's a really uh, outstanding point because it, when you look at the history and how things came to pass exactly how they were prophesied, it is a faith builder. Because you can see huge, huge events happening in the world, or major empires moving, and you can think, well, uh, you know, who can stop that? Who could, who, who could stand in the way of this or that or the other, or escape it? And uh, but if God says that's all you're going to do, that's all you're going to do. You know, you can conquer here, you won't conquer there, and it doesn't really matter what people do one way or the other about it, with the exception of sometimes a repentance might <laughs> spare a nation. But if that's if that's what happens, it, it reminds me actually. Uh, sort of an analogy reminds me of the ocean where, you know, God's talking to Job and he says, you know, well, in explaining, you know, well, where were you when I made all these things, you know, and when I set the bounds of the, the ocean, I said, you come this far and that's it. You know, we've all been at the ocean, even in spite of what the climate change people are saying, it pretty much stays where it is. <laughs> yeah, it's this massive thing. You can't control it, but it only goes this far and it stops. It's the same with these world ruling empires, these armies. You can go this far and then that's it. And yet sometimes we as humans think that we are so powerful and that we're in control. It's like in the book of Revelation where people are praising the beast power of the Holy Roman Empire and saying, who is like unto this beast? Who can make war with this beast? Well, what if there's a God who allowed that beast to have power in the first place? He could crush it whenever he feels like it. And the Bible tells us exactly when that's going to happen. It's the same with all of these other prophecies, probably at the time of these world ruling empires it seemed like they were never going to collapse and yet not only did they fall apart but they did it they did it in a way that uh, was exactly as god said would happen yeah the myers notes the historian that once alexander in in uh, this prophecy slew the weak persian king he regarded himself not only as conqueror but as successor to the persian throne and this is especially interesting, considering what God revealed in Daniel 2 about four world-ruling empires that succeed each other up until Jesus Christ returns to earth to set up his kingdom. Alexander's Grecian Empire was the third of these biblically prophesied world powers. There's the Chaldean Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander's Greco-Macedonian Empire, and then finally the Roman Empire. And then what's most inspiring is then the kingdom of God comes after that. And so uh, when people maybe think about or talk about the return of Christ or something, 
Uh, I don't know how many people really stop and look at these prophecies in Daniel about these empires that do succeed each other up until that one and then say, hey, where are we in that process of empires? Yeah, that's true. It, it is helpful to have a timeline and to actually try to fit into where we are with that now. And then even that, that fifth world really empire, that's pictured as a gigantic boulder just coming down and smashing the Daniel 2 image. Um, that's how it always has to be. The other empires are not just going to lie down and let Christ take rulership. There will have to be a battle, and they will have to be struck down and put into submission. Yep. History and Prophecy of the Middle East. It's a great booklet. It's at thetrumpet.com. Go ahead and check it out. You can uh, look at it uh, right now. That's all the time we have for today on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for uh, being with us here on this Wednesday. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Falk, have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.